Um, I'm delighted to introduce our speaker today, which is Dr. Nicholas Bosch. Um, he is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. Um, I uh, read his paper recently on the implementation of a phenobarbital pathway for severe alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and then started to use phenobarbital more myself and really have sort of become a believer in the benefits of phenobarbital in patients with alcohol withdrawal. Um, so it's my delight to have him here today kind of sharing his work and sharing his knowledge about the use of phenobarbital. Um, thank you, Dr. Bosch, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. So, um, yeah, I'll be talking about our experiences with phenobarbital as well as some early practice pattern results we have um, more nationally about the use of phenobarbital. Um, and I'll start off by saying I am, am not a phenobarbital fanboy, but I think it was really helpful in the context of, of how we were using it. And, I, and there's lots of open questions to um, to discuss, I think, at the end of this. I'd love to hear about how you guys treat alcohol um, withdrawal in your ICUs uh, at the end of this. So I'll start off with uh, disclosures are here. And then the learning objectives, we'll talk about uh, barbiturates overall and alcohol withdrawal syndrome briefly, talk about our experiences implementing a, a phenobarbital-based protocol for alcohol withdrawal syndrome in ICU, and then talk a lot about uh, where are the knowledge gaps. There's a lot of them about severe alcohol withdrawal in ICU. So what is uh, alcohol withdrawal? This is the DSM-5 definition. Uh, so uh, the syndrome is patients who have recently stopped heavy alcohol consumption, and then they have some combination of autonomic instability um, as well as hyper-excitation um, signs and symptoms. What we don't have a definition for um, as clearly defined is severe alcohol withdrawal or SAWS. And so there's really no consensus. Um, it's been defined differently in the literature as severe autonomic symptoms. Sometimes it's um, uh, thought of as the same as complicated withdrawal, so patients that have DTs or seizures. Um, I think I like this definition, a pragmatic definition. If you get admitted to the ICU for your alcohol withdrawal, then that could be severe alcohol withdrawal syndrome, although that's, of course, variable. Um, and then others have defined it as having a high CWA score or other um, um, symptom-driven numerical score despite benzodiazepine therapy. And I'll be coming back to this um, paper at the end, but this is a recently published ATS uh, Society document on the research needs of, of SAWS, and there's 50, 60 of them. There's a lot of them here, um, but I think important that they propose the, the, uh, the definition of SAWS here, the conceptual definition, which I'm in total agreement with, and then also a proposed but unstudied operational definition of a high CWA score or high doses of um, benzodiazepine over a short period of time. So definitely more work needed here to understand exactly what SAWS means. And, and like everything, we need a definition in order to better study it uh, and then to improve the care of, of patients who have alcohol withdrawal. So in very brief, um, undetailed review, I'm going to talk a little bit about what alcohol withdrawal is. And so all of us right now, um, not drinking any alcohol, we have a relative balance of GABA activity and glutamate activity in our brains. And that leads to us being in a steady state where we're not either somnolent or uh, have neuroexcitation and agitation. When you heavily drink alcohol, the alcohol um, leads to uh, increased uh, neurotransmission of and the GABA receptors and inhibition of the glutamate receptors, and that results in the somnolence you see associated with acute alcohol intoxication. 
And then over time, patients who, uh, people who ingest alcohol in large quantities and frequently um, have downregulation of the GABA activity and upregulation of the glutamate receptors. But in the presence of alcohol, that results in basically a steady state where they are functioning from a neuro standpoint, if not from um, other you know, GI issues and, and others. And then when uh, these same people stop drinking alcohol, they no longer have inhibition of their few GABA receptors, uh, activation of their few uh, GABA receptors, and they no longer have the inhibition of the glutamate receptors, and that leads to this um, uh, psychomotor agitation and, and uh, autonomic instability associated with alcohol withdrawal. And uh, benzodiazepines and barbiturates, uh, one of which is phenobarbital, can um, in, uh, activate the GABA receptor in distinct mechanisms. So just because you receive benzodiazepines doesn't mean you don't have further sedative effects from barbiturates and vice versa. And that might be important in the context of, of people who are resistant to one therapy or the other or have a fully saturated receptors for one or the other. And then barbiturates are also thought to act to inhibit um, glutamate receptors, the AMPA and kinate receptors, although it's less clear if these are the receptors that are um, particularly at play for some of the autonomic instability and the seizure activity associated with SAWS. So it's not clear that this other effect of barbiturates really is helpful in uh, alcohol withdrawal, but it might be. So going back about 20 years ago, this um, consensus statement from the American Society of Addiction Medicine that came out in JAMA really is what put benzos on the map as the gold standard for treatment of alcohol withdrawal based on uh, several randomized controlled trials. They also did a meta-analysis um, looking at other possible um, therapies and adjuncts. And this is what they said about phenobarbital at the time. So they mentioned some of the potentially good things about phenobarbital. It can be reliably administered, it's cheap, uh, it's known to have anti-convulsant activity, which along with death, which basically doesn't happen anymore. Seizure is really the, the feared complication from, from alcohol withdrawal. Um, and, but then they also say that barbiturates may pose a greater risk of respiratory depression, um, as well as may have an overall lower safety profile than benzodiazepines. And I, I think, you know, if you go back through this guideline, it's, there's a little bit of a short shrift given to, to barbiturates. The two trials I'm going to talk about subsequently that included uh, phenobarbital were not included in this meta-analysis. They were older. Um, and then I also think that if you do the deep dive on the references from these guidelines, it's kind of murky. You know, it's not that uh, different from the, the literature on opioids being safe and non-addictive, right? If you do the deep dive on the citations, you find that there's really not that strong of evidence saying that the respiratory depression of phenobarbital is worse than benzodiazepine. So, but there was strong evidence from RCTs that benzodiazepines were safe and effective in alcohol withdrawal. We're not talking about SAWS here, we're talking about all alcohol withdrawal. So this is a summary of the RCTs that I know of to date about barbiturates for alcohol withdrawal. This top table summarizes two now getting a little bit older studies from the 1970s. They were both about 50 arm randomized um, controlled trials that compared benzodiazepines to barbiturates as monotherapy. These are the only studies that I'm aware of that really um, said that these were the only treatments given to the patients. And you can see that both similarly had a similar reduction in seizures. There were other treatments that were tested in these, including antipsychotics, which did not reduce seizures, I think, as we all know. 
um, and no deaths were experienced in either group, which is basically un unchanged now. Very, very few people die from alcohol withdrawal. And again, this is um, alcohol withdrawal treatment centers, not severe alcohol withdrawal centers in ICU. And then these subsequent two uh, studies are more contemporary, 2011 and 2013. They're both conducted in the emergency room. And this study was a small study that randomized patients who had an elevated CWA who walked into the emergency room uh, to receive either lorazepam, two milligrams IV, two, 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 whenever they uh, physician um, based on symptom triggered, two, 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 versus phenobarb, I think it was like 230, and then subsequent doses of 130, 130, 130, 130. So monotherapy, repeat doses whenever the patient needed it, and they found no differences in the rate of admission to the hospital. It's a small study, uh, and similar reductions in the CWA score with both medications. And then this second study by Rosenson, um, in 2013, uh, looked at patients who had already received symptom-triggered benzodiazepines, so CWA benzodiazepines, and were being admitted to the hospital. So they were sick enough with their alcohol withdrawal to require admission to the hospital, and looked at whether giving them phenobarbital at a dose of 10 megs per kg ideal body weight, that's the same dose that uh, I'll, I'll tell you about later that we've used in our protocol, but a relatively large dose of phenobarb still a little less than what's given for epilepsy in many cases, but a large dose of phenobarb um, compared to placebo, and they found reductions in the rate of ICU admission and reductions in the uh, need for continuous lorazepam infusion uh, among patients who receive phenobarb. And this was an important part of why we ended up implementing our protocol, where, where this was the second finding here about lorazepam infusions, which I'll talk about briefly. So in addition to RCTs, there's a lot of literature about protocols um, and implementation of phenobarbital protocols, mostly as an adjunct to benzodiazepines in a variety of settings uh, in the ED and ICU, and then also monotherapy, although that's been studied less. Here's one of, of monotherapy in the ICU. Um, and these protocols, uh, they've found a variety of findings mostly with simple pre-post-test design, so taking a mean before and a mean afterwards, so you uh, take some of those results with a grain of salt, and sometimes they found that um, phenobarbital protocols were associated with lower rates of mechanical ventilation, some with no difference in mechanical ventilation, some with shorter lengths of stay, some without, and so I think the takeaway from all these studies together is that there's no study that shows that adding phenobarbital to a pathway or a protocol results in worse outcomes, but it's definitely not clear that, that adding phenobarbital improves outcomes. So that's the takeaway um, of these existing studies of phenobarbital pathways in the ICU and in the emergency room. So that brings us a little bit to um, the hospital I work at. So I work at Boston Medical Center, uh, and we are a 514-bed urban safety net hospital. Um, we unfortunately have a right next door a, um, a Drugs, Inc. named street that's called uh, Methadone Mile. We see a, a really high rate of polysubstance use uh, amongst our patients. 57% comes from the underserved background. We have a really high volume ED that often does primary care issues in addition to seeing a lot of trauma, and we have 74 ICU beds. Um, and it turns out Boston Medical Center and Boston University is also the home of Rich State, um, who unfortunately passed away this year. A uh, really sad uh, situation, but he was one of the fathers of the management of alcohol withdrawal across the world. He, his study um, in JAMA, you can see here in 1994, predated CEWA. It was the first 
study to show that inpatient alcohol withdrawal symptom triggered benzos rather than fixed dose benzos improves length of stay. And so that's kind of our one of the gold standard studies showing that benzodiazepines in a symptom triggered method are preferred over fixed dose. So since 2014, RICU has had protocolized alcohol withdrawal care. Um, in 2014, before 2014, we had no protocol and we did ad hoc treatment. Um, and since 2014, we've had this uh, protocolized care. And it comes from this gold study, which was published in CCM in, in 2007. It's modified from that. But what it included was escalating doses, small doses of lorazepam and phenobarbital. So four milligrams, of Ativan, 65 milligrams of phenobarb, and switching between those doses each time a patient had progressive symptoms. And then it, it results in a lorazepam infusion for patients with resistant um, alcohol withdrawal symptoms, symptoms or refractory symptoms. And it specified haloperidol as an adjunct. I'll say for this protocol, we uh, uh, anecdotal evidence started to emerge from physicians and nurses right away and then for the next four years before we changed it that there were issues with it and i think one of the biggest issues was that patients were ending up on lorazepam infusions and then often would need to be mechanically intubated in the setting of over sedation on lorazepam infusions and then we were also dealing with situations where the lorazepam infusions once stopped the patients would become agitated and we were never sure if this was um uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal or continued alcohol withdrawal or icy delirium. And so we were always stuck with these patients on high doses of sedatives that we thought were kind of contributing to the problem, not just fixing the problem. Uh, and, and that subsequently we felt was leading to increased rates of mechanical ventilation and length of stay. And then there was also this issue that uh, the protocol, this is maybe a new, but it said consider phenobarb uh, interspersed with lorazepam. And what that meant because the decisions were often made by our bedside ICU nurses, is that they were more familiar with benzodiazepines because that's what they've used for alcohol withdrawal for, for uh, uh, before the protocol was implemented. And so this word even consider phenobarb in the setting of no one being experienced using phenobarb meant that no one got phenobarb. And so for all intents and purposes, most of the time this ended up being a lorazepam protocol, which I think has its problems of treating uh, alcohol withdrawal with just lorazepam is not a good idea, I think, in most situations. So this was our existing protocol, and, and we thought there were problems with it. And so we set out to try to improve upon the management of SAWS in our ICU. We wanted to make the outcomes better for patients. Specifically, we, we thought we needed to reduce the rate of mechanical ventilation, hopefully also improve length of stay. And we really wanted to improve the workflow for clinicians caring for patients with SAWS. The existing protocol with its small doses of antibiotics a phenobarb and Ativan that were ramped up led to a uh, nursing feeling that they were just for 24 hours until the patient was under better control, felt like they were in the bedroom, in the hospital beds, constantly having to give more medications. And it was pretty burdensome on their workflow when they're sometimes caring for more than one patient. And then at the same time, we felt like there was an opportunity uh, uh, to study the implementation and effectiveness of a new protocol in a more robust way that captured outcomes in a way that we could say perhaps more causally about what the impact of our protocol was, rather than using some of the sim more simple pre-post designs of, of existing protocol and studies. 
And so uh, this protocol we developed, we engaged stakeholders, our own ICU leadership, uh, on the ground, nurses, pharmacists, residents, fellows, attendings, as well as our um, EPIC EMR build team to uh, institute this new protocol. The old protocol was also in our EMR, so that wasn't really a change from prior. And we reviewed, as I discussed, the safety and workflow concerns of the existing pathway. And then we reached out to Mass General and our own VA, who have been using phenobarb for some time. And I'll talk about that in the next slide, uh, because of a shortage of benzodiazepines at their hospital, to get their thoughts on um, how it was going. And then our overall goal was to design a simpler uh, pathway where there was less ambiguity, where the decision wouldn't be on the onus of the bedside nurse to make a decision about what the right treatment was, and then also to minimize benzodiazepine infusions. Our goal wasn't to minimize benzodiazepines themselves, but to minimize these lorazepam infusions, which we thought were leading to the, the problem uh, in our patients. So as I mentioned, uh, phenobarbital uh, was started as a monotherapy at Mass General Hospital. Um, about three, four years ago, uh, in the setting of a shortage of benzodiazepines. So they made an overarching hospital decision to not use benzodiazepines as much as possible, especially in patients experiencing alcohol withdrawal. And this was hospital-wide, and they published their results in pharmacotherapy in 2000, uh, sorry, sorry, in psychosomatics in 2019. Um, and they uh, really looked at the results not in a, in a in a qualitative way, I would say in general, they, they do present some simple proportions. And they say, like, look at, compared to benzodiazepine use, people who receive phenobarbital, it didn't really look like there were any differences. So a lot of the um, paper was about their experiences using the protocol. And so uh, their protocol for phenobarb was then adopted by both Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital and our VA. Um, and it was based on all of these anecdotal experiences from both all three of these hospitals that everyone loved the phenobarb there. And so I think there was a gap in the understanding of the actual effectiveness in a robust study. But it, from talking to any provider there, they said, oh, yeah, phenobarb is fantastic. Phenobarb is fantastic. So I think based on this information and the existing RCTs and um, uh, retrospective studies that were out there, we decided that pheno, a phenobarbital-based protocol that minimized the use of benzodiazepines was uh, a, uh, a path towards reducing the reliance on lorazepam infusion in our hospital. And so this is what we came up with, and, and it's detailed, but unfortunately, like all um, pathways and protocols are, but I'll give you the highlights. The highlights are it's front-loaded, which I think is a really important concept and different from our existing uh, protocol. So that means that large doses of phenobarb were given up front in the dose of 10 megs per kg, and it's triggered. So it's not based on CEWA because patients in ICU can't always perform a CEWA because it's symptom-based. So it's instead based on a Riker agitation score. And so patients that had a Riker score of five, which is mildly agitated along with autonomic symptoms, so hypertension and, and um, tachycardia, they would get the phenobarbital loading dose, or if you had a higher Riker score. So if you were extremely agitated, you could get the phenobarb. And then subsequent, after 30 min minutes, you'd get reassessed once by the, by the bedside nurse using those same criteria about whether or not you'd get a, a rescue dose of phenobarb. It could be no rescue dose, 2.5 or five, 
And then after that, everyone got the exact same dose. So after that, everyone just gets a much, much lower dose taper, which I don't think is honestly even necessary because phenobarbital is self-tapering. But the doses are like 60 milligrams a day, 30 milligrams a day, 16 milligrams a day, and then off. And so compare that to, you know, 600 milligrams up front, it's a much lower dose of, of tapered dose. And then the protocol specified dexmedetomidine as the primary adjunct, followed by Haldol if there was refractory agitation. So definitely different to the old protocol. There's no benzodiazepines in this protocol, and we recommended that benzodiazepines not be given at all. Um, and also the adjuncts were certainly different. The, the old protocol rec recommended Haldol's first line, this recommended uh, in this first line. And so I'll say, I think really, if you want to think about the differences between the protocol, one was uh, phenobarb and benzos, and one was just phenobarb. So you could, we've called it a phenobarbital-based uh, protocol, but I think you can also think of it as a no-benzodiazepine protocol. So um, implementation, pretty standard implementation procedures here. We, we circulated emails, and we went to conferences like this one to, to uh, talk with everyone about uh, an upcoming change to our protocol. We did some trial runs in our EPIC interface. We did individual and simulation training with our nurses and our resident physicians. And then we picked the go-live date of October 1st, 2018. For implementation and good natural experiment, quasi-experimental designs, having a fixed start date is really important to uh, being able to say something causal about your, your outcomes. And so um, avoiding a ramp-up period was pretty important for us when we were designing this study. And then uh, from a, an effectiveness standpoint, we use mixed methods. And so in our, our primary analysis, we were looking at qualitative semi-structured interviews of nurses and physicians um, to understand the feasibility, acceptability of the new pathway. We also uh, surveyed nurses and physicians. And then for patients, we use non-inferiority interrupted time periods. And I'll go a little bit into that about what that means. And so the concept of non-inferiority, um, this is, is likely a review for many of you, but is to allow us to take new treatments and compare them to existing treatments and be able to adequately power studies to say something about how much worse or better a new treatment is than the existing one. So that's very different than, um, uh, than uh, enrolling a few patients and concluding that there's no difference, right? That's just an underpowered study. And, and this slide, um, I think, nicely shows the differences between uh, superiority, non-inferiority, inconclusive results, which are when you have a too small of a sample size and inferiority. So the idea between non-inferiority study is that you say that the new treatment is allowed to be X amount worse than the existing treatment. So we had a hypothesis about how much worse our new phenobarbital protocol would be allowed to be worse than the existing protocol, um, such that we would still take the new protocol over the old protocol because we thought it would have other benefits, for example, better workflow for nursing. And so we are a conceptual framework for this whole study and being a mixed method is that we could test non-inferiority for patient-centered outcomes uh, of the new pathway and at the same time be able to comprehensively assess the nurse and physician um, workflow related to the new protocol that would really give us uh, a metric to say, hey, this is better for nurses and, and uh, physicians, so therefore non-inferiority is, is okay. So 
that's how we thought about our study design. Our interviews, semi-structured, as I mentioned, uh, here's our conceptual model. We conducted individual interviews, and we used a content analysis and ground and thematic approach to uh, code the, the, the interviews. The survey was sent to all nurses and physicians in the six months before the new protocol and then six months after, anybody who took care of a patient um, in the medical ICU during that time point. And then we asked questions about uh, the medications themselves in the two protocols, their workflow, and what they thought the outcomes were for patients. And then for our patient level analysis, we included all patients admitted to the ICU who were started on a protocol, either as a, a, started on a alcohol withdrawal protocol, either as a before or after implementation period. And so again, that's kind of a pragmatic definition of SAWS, of saying, if you come to the ICU and a physician decided that you needed the protocol, therefore you were included. And we excluded anyone who received IMP or were receiving IMP at the time that the pathway was started. Our primary outcome was initiation of mechanical ventilation. We chose this both because some existing data showed that phenobarbital might um, be associated with rates of invasive mechanical ventilation, might reduce rates of invasive mechanical ventilation, and also because we think it is a nice um, summary measure of both the over sedation problems of medications for SAWS, right? If you get over sedated, you might need to be uh, intubated. And then also uh, issues with under treating, right? If you're really agitated, you need the airway control, you might also receive mechanical ventilation. So that was our reason for our primary outcome. Um, we a priori specified our non-inferiority um, limit at a relative change of 15%. And I'll just, I'll show you the results in a little bit. And then we looked at lots of process and safety outcomes. How did med medication use change after adoption of the new protocol? Um, and what about things like fitter, uh, physical restraints, length of stay, et cetera? So what is the interrupted time series? So interrupted time series is a quasi-experimental method. And that's a loose term for saying a method that um, is a natural experiment that helps to account for some of the typical biases and confounding inherent to retrospective analyses. And so in a, in a simple format, if you think of this is time, the x-axis is time, let's say months, and this purple line is an intervention, and in our case, it was starting a new phenobarb protocol in October 8, uh, 2018. Uh, many studies, uh, especially quality studies, will just take the mean of these values of the rate of some outcome before the study and the mean afterwards, and the conclusion reached by this top graph would be, hey, it looks like things were about the same. And the ITS, the interrupted time series, is more powerful because it takes into account time trends. And so, like everything um, in the hospital outcome-wise, things change over time, right? There's seasonal changes. COVID happens in waves. Um, COPD exacerbations happen in the winter. So there's changes over time uh, due to uh, lots of factors, other implementation efforts, things like that. And so ITS can take this into account. And so you can see this is the same data but analyzed using ICS. You can see that there was an increasing trend of the outcome prior to whatever was initiated. This is hypothetical data. And then it resulted right at the time of, um, of the new protocol, a, a, a jump decrease in the rate of the outcome compared to the counterfactual. This is like what would have happened if there was no intervention. And then also a decrease in the slope. And so our hypothesis was that when the phenobarbital protocol went live, we would see a jump down in the rate of mechanical ventilation. That was our hypothesis. 
the results came out in Annals ATS a um, couple months back, and so you can see those the full the full results there. I'll talk a little bit about what we found today. So for the interviews, we interviewed 20 people, uh, a variety of nurses, residents, and uh, attendings, and that four main themes emerged from our our talk, and those were that this uh, designing this pathway that balanced standardization of care, so everyone basically got the same thing, with clinical judgment, promoted acceptability. People really liked the simplicity of the new pathway and that made it easier to use. It streamlined workflow, and this was something that was unexpected, but that some of the implementation strategies developed by our ICU nurses worked better than our implementation strategies. So I'll just go through some representative quotes and, and feel free to read this. These were nursing responses. Basically, for them not feeling like that they had to make a judgment call about what medication to give uh, was easier. Here's some more illustrative quotes from the second theme. Here, that simplicity made it feasible and easier to use. This second quote happened a lot, I think, where um, patients were more heavily sedated up front in the protocol with that front-loaded dose compared to the pre-existing protocol we had before. And I think that allowed nurses to, um, uh, to move and, and go ahead and see the other patients without having to combat uh, hallucinations and agitation. And then here were the surprising results to us that basically the nurses um, put postings of the pathway everywhere that they used it in the patient rooms and in their conference room and they found that uh, much, much better than trying to find the protocol online, which we thought we had placed in good response. Survey results, so we had poor survey response. So we sent it to 241 individuals. We got 16 responses, a uh, 16% response rate. You can see the breakdown here. So take the survey results with a, uh, a healthy grain of salt. There were the statistical differences in several of the questions asked pre to post, so we did the survey twice, uh, before to afterwards. And so the proportion of, or the percent of respondents who were concerned about the risk of mechanical ventilation when using the protocol decreased with the new protocol. Uh, similarly, the respondents who said they had to frequently administer adjuncts went down. Uh, they felt that there was less ambiguity post-implementation of the Phenobar protocol about what specific dose and what medication to use. And they felt that the, um, the phenobarbital-based pathway was less burdensome to use. Here is a table one for our patient-based um, outcomes. We powered our study. We thought we needed about 116 patients in each arm. We conducted the study for a year. We got about twice that amount. We had about 20. I think it turns out to be about 20 patients a, a month with alcohol withdrawal. You can see that their characteristics are well-balanced between both groups. Most patients were male, the overwhelming majority. Um, maybe a slightly more agitated patient at baseline when they presented in the, in the new, with the new protocol and very similar, similar severity of score of illnesses. Here's our ITS um, results for our primary outcome of mechanical ventilation. Pre-implementation at this, at this um, threshold, at the, when the study was started, the rate was 17.1%, and post-implementation, it was 12.9%. Uh, 
and that resulted in an adjusted mean difference of 4.9%. And you choose just one, one confidence interval when you're doing a non-inferiority study, and ours was 0.7, and that was well within our non-inferiority um, bound. So the interpretation of these results is the new pathway was non-inferior to the old pathway in regards to the rate of mechanical ventilation, and that our best guess was that it was reduced, um, that, that um, it was associated with a reduction, although that confidence interval crossed zero. Um, so take that for what it, what it is. Here's our secondary outcomes. Um, I think not too many surprises here. Benzo use went down in the ICU. We did not uh, we did not evaluate what the benzo indication was, and benzos were used for things like mechanical ventilation. So I think that why 30% still received alcohol uh, received benzos was due to procedural or or invasive mechanical ventilation, but I don't know for sure. Um, phenobarb use increased. Again, remember we had phenobarb use in our other protocol as well. Halidol use, interestingly, increased, even though it was a second-line adjunct. Presidex, dexmedetomidine went up a lot. And then after the patients left the MICU when they were on the floors, their use of benzos went down, and their use of phenobarb went up, I think, as expected. Huge issues with multiple testing here, right? These are all 95% confidence intervals aren't accounting for all of the different tests we conducted. You can see that it looks like um, one-to-one -one fitter use is numerically smaller. Restraint use within 95% confidence intervals are also less with the phenobarbital protocol. There was one seizure in the post-group, zero in the pre-group. The seizure occurred um, after the phenobarbital protocol was ordered, but before any phenobarb was given. Um, vasopressor use was similar. Delirium was similar. Length of stay was similar. And there was a reduction at the 95% level in, in hospital length of stay, which I'm still not sure I know how to explain. Um, I think some of the other measures, this is consistent with what we also saw. Patients weren't in restraints. They didn't need a one-to-one fitter. And I think the, the reason was that these patients were front-loaded with a high dose of phenobarb, so they were asleep. So patients were asleep but not intubated for about 24 hours then they would slowly wake up. And that's what we found time and time again. And I think that's what probably drove the decrease in restraint use was that patients received um, uh, higher doses of sedative medications up front rather than with the older protocol where it was a ramp up effect. This was a front loaded, front loaded strategy. Other things that came up, uh, like I said, patients were more heavily sedated. What about when patients can leave? So patients stopped experiencing alcohol withdrawal within 24 hours, but then it was like, well, do we feel safe transferring them out of the ICU? We, early on in the protocol, everyone was quite worried about the potential for respiratory depression with phenobarb, and so everyone didn't want to send these patients out of the ICU until they were like back to normal, and over time, we've kind of gone away from that as we've realized we haven't had bad outcomes associated with it. There are issues with ideal body weight calculations at the extremes of height that we had to overcome. Um, patients could still have symptoms of alcohol withdrawal that weren't agitation. So they might be tremulous and anxious despite receiving phenobarb and our protocol said nothing about what to do for those patients. Um, practically speaking, most of those patients got dexmedetomidine as a treatment for that, but our, our protocol doesn't address what to do for those patients that might be um, feeling unwell 
uh, but not be agitated or delirious. And then we had to think about what to do for patients who were already on the floor experiencing alcohol withdrawal and then um, had needed a step up in therapy to the ICU. We thought about this one a little bit before we started our protocol. We decided we were going to treat them the same, just give them phenobarb uh, at the same doses. And that turned out to not be an issue, but that was one of our concerns was whether patients who had received high doses of benzodiazepines on the floor would be at risk for further respiratory depression with phenobarb. And, and we didn't see any safety signals that suggested that. So I think um, the implications from our study are um, here. So the feasibility and acceptability were based, I think, on the pathway being designed by nurses, designed by ICU leadership and pharmacists. So that really helped make sure that the pathway was helpful and good for everyone involved, not just the patients. That's an important component. Um, and I think that it's also that we found non-inferior rates of mechanical ventilation. And, and I think that this provides the strongest evidence we have to date that uh, a protocolized phenobarb protocol um, doesn't increase your IMV risk. That's always the fear, I think, that it's going to be associated with worse IMV. But again, that comparison is only to our, our, our protocol prior to this. It doesn't, it doesn't importantly say what's on this slide, right? So what we can't conclude is that phenobarb is better than benzos. There's lots of differences, even though interrupted time series is a, is a more powerful quantitative method to compare um, outcomes retrospectively. There are lots of differences between our new protocol and the old one, and that includes adjunct use, uh, front-loading. I, I still think that that's the biggest issue here. I think if you gave patients front-loaded diazepam, you'd probably have the same outcomes as front-loaded peanut bar. Um, all of our patients receive benzodiazepines in the ED. That's, that was the standard of care. So it's unclear if I think I think there's a good possibility that because these patients were in the ED, received benzos, and still needed to go to the ICU, that suggests they had benzodiazepine resistance. And so, therefore, it makes sense that everyone who would come to the ICU for alcohol withdrawal would receive phenobarb and get better because giving them more benzos when they're already saturated, their GABA receptors at the benzo receptor is probably not that helpful. Um, and interestingly, now our emergency rooms, a lot of their residents train in our ICU, and they've seen how well the phenobarb works, and now they've adopted phenobarb in our IED. So it will be interesting to study how the effects of starting phenobarb in our IED affects the outcomes of patients admitted to the ICU. And I wouldn't be surprised if the effectiveness goes down, because now, again, patients will be receiving true monotherapy phenobarb in the ED, phenobarb in the ICU, uh, versus before they were receiving benzos before they came to us. And then just, I, I think as you all know, doesn't matter what type of retrospective study you do, reviewers and, and, and me too will say, though, it's not a randomized clinical trial, and that's true. They're probably unmissed. So where are we now? So this is the um, uh, Addiction Society of America guidelines that came out, I think, in 2020. And this is about treating alcohol withdrawal in the hospital. And they've a little bit loosened their, their statement about barbiturates. So now they say, if you can't use benzos, you can use phenobarb as monotherapy. I don't know who these patients are that have a true contraindication to benzos, but they're, they say it might be okay. And then you can use phenobarb as an adjunct to benzos. So I think there there's not one study that really says 
senior barbs should be used, but the evidence is certainly mounting that it's at least okay and, and safe in patients with alcohol withdrawal. And to that end, this is unpublished data that we uh, have under review right now, but this is among 20% sample of United States inpatient hospitalizations. And we looked at patients admitted to the ICU with a primary diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal. So this is uh, thousands and thousands of patients. And we looked at the rate on the first day of, of what type of medication they get. And so you can see that over time, almost all patients are getting benzodiazepines. So there's very few patients that get monotherapy with phenobarb, but the proportion of patients getting phenobarb has increased dramatically. So this is a 300% change in the use of phenobarb across this 20% of U.S. samples versus benzos has been no change. Uh, Dexmedetomidine and clonidine is about a 60% increase. Haldol and, and others with iapine have gone down slightly. So the relative increase in phenobarbital over time has increased dramatically. And similarly, unpublished, we, we have here each on the x-axis, it's individual hospitals. So you can see that there's wide variation in the use of hospitals. There's lots of hospitals that use no phenobarb. And then there's, you know, the 20-ish hospitals that use phenobarb and up to 50% of their patients with alcohol withdrawal. And then among those hospitals that do use phenobarb, you can see that the dose, this is the day one dose, is also widely variable. There's a lot that are getting these 60 milligram doses like our old protocol and like the gold um, study. And then there's some, these hospitals are on average giving patients much higher doses, more consistent with our protocol of 10 mg per kg or, or maybe higher. So wide variation in phenobarbital use and definitely increasing. And so that brings us back to just the final couple of slides to talk about. Um, there's a lot we don't know about how optimally to manage SAWS. It starts with not having a good definition, as I mentioned at the beginning. That best outcomes to track, I think, are unclear, and also the ones that I think are important, that are patient-centered, are hard to measure. So just like all of our ICU studies, measuring um, recidivism, you know, um, uh, readmission, uh, rates of abstinence, those are really hard to capture using some sort of ICU database or ICU study. And so those are probably the patient-centered outcomes that matter. Maybe not mechanical ventilation as much. Maybe. Maybe length to stay, but maybe not. And so we need to, to think of the best outcomes to measure. Whether phenobarb is, is comparable as monotherapy or as an adjunct in SAWS um, is unclear. Right? We've, we've, there's some RCTs and in less severe alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and maybe uh, these ED studies, these small ED studies, but nothing, nothing, no larger RCTs. Whether front-loading is better than non-front-loading, I'm a big advocate for front-loading in SAWS, specifically not alcohol, not all alcohol withdrawal, but I think that's still uh, an open question. And then what's the right adjunct to use? People are exploring ketamine, propofol, dexmedetomidine, all these are being used um, as well, in addition to phenobarb, and no one knows the right approach. And if you want a list of all the, the, the possible research knowledge gaps that we have, this is a great just came out of ACS uh, in the last year. What our group is, is starting to propose, and we're starting to work with SCCM on this, is, is a large adaptive Bayesian trial. We think it's probably the right way to go moving forward, is to say there are tons of combinations of treatments that are possible for alcohol withdrawal. And so we need to start whittling down what the right ones are. And so 
uh, a pragmatic trial using this design would allow you to start with randomization to lots of different combinations, all these different things the hospitals are doing, and that over time with interim analyses, we'd be able to whittle down to what the most effective combination is, and we're, we're proposing with SCCM that that's the way to go, and hopefully if, if, if you guys and your ICUs are interested in being part of that, let me know. And that's it. Uh, these are the people I'd like to thank that are involved with our study, and I'd love to have a discussion about how you guys are managing alcohol withdrawal and any questions uh, about our approaches.